Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. So if you missed the past few weeks here at Holy Cross, then you've missed that we're spending this entire year of 2020 looking at the gospel of Luke. Our hope is to see Jesus clearly, to have a clear vision of who he is by the end of the year. And if there's someone who can help us do that, we've seen already that it's the author of this gospel. It's Luke, this beloved physician uh, and a, a disciple of Jesus and assistant to Paul as well. And what we're seeing in this detailed account of Jesus's life is that, first of all, the faith that we have is well-founded. It's grounded in historical events, people, and places. It's grounded in facts. And then secondly, that perhaps we don't know this Jesus as well as we thought we did. As we begin our series, Luke records this spiritual paradigm shift that's going on. It's epic. And the people of God haven't heard God speak for 400 years. And even after the birth of Jesus and then the various encounters that people have with angels, there's this silence for 30 years. And then everything changes. The last Old Testament prophet arrives. And he's heralding the beginning of this new covenant or this new testament. And nothing is ever going to be the same again. And so two weeks ago, we encountered the last of these Old Testament prophets. It's John the Baptist. And we see that Jesus is the one who brings light into the darkness of the world. It's a dark world they're living in, but Jesus is appearing. And then lastly, we heard about how Jesus' baptism at the hands of John the Baptist was one in which we see Jesus a man who was without sin, identifying with us in baptism. He identifies with us and gives us an example of what we are to do. And then he is filled with the Holy Spirit, as are we in our own baptism. Well, this week, though, we move on to Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. We just heard it in our gospel reading. And what we'll see is that Jesus is the one human to ever live who is sinless. And he's able to overcome all temptation to sin. He is, if you will, the second or final Adam. Well, as we touch on this topic of temptation, I'm reminded of a story I once heard in England. And a man was sitting outside his local pub one day enjoying a few pints of beer, as Englishmen are wont to do, and just generally enjoying himself. Well, this nun walked past him and started to lecture him on the evils of drinking. She said, you should be ashamed of yourself, young man. Ashamed. Drinking is a sin and alcohol is the blood of the devil. Well, the man was pretty annoyed about this and went on the offensive. He said, well, how do you know this, sister? And the nun replied, well, my mother superior told me so. And the man persisted, though, but have you ever had a drink yourself? How can you be sure that what you're saying is right? Don't be ridiculous, said the nun. Of course, I've never taken alcohol myself. Well, then let me buy you a drink. And if you still believe afterwards that it's evil, I will give up drink for the rest of my life, boldly proclaimed the man. Well, horrified, the nun replied, how could I, a nun, sit inside this public house of drinking? And the man said, well, I'll get the bartender and I'll get him to put the drink in a teacup for you. And then no one will ever know. Well, the nun was finally tempted and then reluctantly agreed. And so the man quickly went inside to the bartender. Another pint for me and a triple vodka on the rocks. <laughs> then he lowered his voice and he said to the barman, could you put the vodka in a teacup? Without hesitating, the barman rolled his eyes and said, oh no, it's not that alcoholic nun again, is it? 
So with that, let's turn to our gospel reading from Luke. <laughs> First of all, what is the context of our story today? Well, it's what I'd call a lay reader's nightmare. If you're wondering what a lay reader is, these two gentlemen are fine examples of what lay readers are, okay? And the reason I think it's a lay reader's nightmare is this. If you have brought your Bible with you, which I encourage, it's always a good thing to do, uh, you could see that the passage right beforehand is a list of names. And not just a few names, it is 75 Old Testament names. Trust me, I counted them, every single one. And there's some famous ones that you've probably heard of, like maybe Joseph or David, or Abraham, or Noah, okay? And then there's some not-so-famous ones like Mathat, Mahalalil, Eliakim, and perhaps my favorite, Zerubbabel. It's just got a great ring to it, Zerubbabel, right? I had to practice all of those, trust me. <laughs> but Zerubbabel. Now, by us choosing to skip this passage, you might think, well, probably that section's not, not all that important because, you know, we're going through the whole of Luke piece by piece. We want to cover X, every section. You might think, well, if they're skipping these verses... They're not that important, but we'd be wrong to think that. And let me explain why. Luke's got this genealogy of Jesus in there. That's what the list of names is. It's this genealogy going backwards from Jesus all the way on. And it's helping him establish who Jesus is and what he's going to do. It's amazing how many times in the States I'll tell people where I'm from, and an American will say to me, well, I'm from Ireland. I'll say, really? You, just, you moved here from Ireland? No, 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 no. Ten generations ago, my family came from Ireland, so I'm Irish. And I go, okay, you look American to me, but that's all right. People are concerned about their genealogy and where they come from, and that's not a bad thing. Well, Luke is trying to actually establish who Jesus is through doing this. He cares a lot about the details, remember, and this is a lot of detail that he's going to. And what he's doing is he's setting up the next story and really the rest of the gospel. You see, Jesus has just been baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. You probably remember that from last week. And he's been empowered for action. And what does Luke then remind us of? That Jesus is a descendant of Adam. These 75 names gradually work their way all the way down to Adam, the first man. Now, what do we know about Adam? Anyone want to hazard a guess? What do you know about Adam? What's that? Come on, come on. Say, original, sin. original sin, well done. You get a prize later. Uh, you get to read all 75 names for us. All right, you're welcome, Jay. Um, but yeah, original sin. Sin enters the world through Adam. Yes, he's the first man, but he's also the first man to sin as well, isn't he? He's tempted by the devil in the Garden of Eden along with his wife Eve. And then he gives in and he chooses to disobey God. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam was the first man. And because of giving in to temptation, we are all tainted by sin. As C.S. Lewis puts it in, our, uh, in his Narnia series, we are all daughters of Eve or sons of Adam. Jesus, however, is the second Adam. He's version 2.0, if you like. He's the update that we needed. He's the final update, too. No one else will need to come after him because he's going to do what Adam failed to do. He's going to live a sinless life in order that he can be the perfect, spotless sacrifice to pay the price for all of mankind's sin. And it begins right here for Luke with a time of testing and temptation 
in the wilderness. So let's take a look at the first temptation. If you want to pull out your scripture sheet, you can follow along. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. And notice what the devil does here. He says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. He's planting seeds of doubt in Jesus' mind, just like he did with Eve back in Genesis chapter 3 at the very beginning. Eve's there and Adam's right there next to her as well. And he says, in this case, if you are the son of God, which has just been proclaimed over him that he is, then command this stone to become bread. And he's using his physical hunger to attack Jesus' vocation to be fully human. Remember, he's 100% man as well as 100% God. And it must have been tempting to give in, right? He's been there for 40 days and 40 nights. And I love the way the Bible puts it. It just says he was hungry. (laughs) It was starving, right? 40 days and 40 nights. And people still do this in certain places. They will fast for 40 days and nights for some food. Well, as the Son of God, he's got the power to turn stones into bread. He can do that if he wants to. But here at this time, he's called to trust his Father to provide for his physical needs. It's his duty to be obedient to his call, to go into the desert, to fast, and not to decide for himself either the moment or the manner in which this fast will end. Therefore, he responds to the devil with the first of three quotes from Deuteronomy. In verse 4, he says this, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus resists, doesn't he? He manages to hold firm where we too often would fail. Or if I'm honest, I would fail. You know, I give in to the desire to meet my needs with physical or material solutions when God's calling me to be patient and to trust in him and his calling. Whether it's with food or drink or internet shopping or maybe sex or Netflix, we can all be tempted to turn to good things and turn them into the most important things in our lives when God wants us to trust him in these moments and him alone, in those moments where we're being called to follow him. Well, in the second temptation, the devil abandons his more subtle approach. This time he comes right out and he tells Jesus Jesus to worship him, and in return, he's going to give him the whole earth. He takes him up to a very high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world, And in verses 6 and 7, he says this, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. It's like that scene, isn't it, from so many movies. You know the one where the, the, the evil adversary offers the young hero the world and all its wealth. All the hero has to do is compromise on their beliefs, compromise on their quest, And just turn to the dark side, right? Forget who you really are. Forget that quest that you've been called to. Just give in. Take the easy way and receive the power that's on offer to you. Now, for Jesus, this is the temptation to use the devil's weapons of cruelty, of ruthlessness and force in a heartless thrust for universal dominion. Instead of winning men and women by self-sacrifice and suffering, and so making them willing subjects of the kingdom of God. And it's a shortcut. It's a chance to escape the way of the cross that he's been called to. It's a chance to escape the pain and the suffering that he's called to endure for each and every one of us. But the truth is that evil can never be overcome by evil. And God's reign cannot be established by satanic means. There are no shortcuts. 
And Jesus knows this because he knows the Old Testament. We're seeing that already, particularly Isaiah. And he knows all of the prophecies concerning the Messiah and how he'll have to suffer for his people in order that they might be saved. He knows his identity and his calling. So he turns to Deuteronomy again, and in verse 8 he says this, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It's the first and the greatest commandment. It's the right beginning and the right end point of any human's identity and calling. Get this wrong, and all of the rest of it will be messed up for any one of us. It's where Adam and Eve went wrong way back at the beginning. They wanted to be God themselves, and so they choose to eat of the fruit of the tree. It's where the Israelites went wrong over and over again, turning to false idols, making golden calves, and serving their own needs. And if I'm honest and you're honest, it's where we go wrong day after day, month after month, year after year. We forget whose we really are and why we are really here. I can do it in five minutes, friends. I don't know about you. I can just forget like that. And then we settle for the easier way rather than the way of the cross. We settle for the path of least resistance. And we start to ask questions like, well, surely God didn't really say that. Or it's okay if I do things my own way and not God's way. Or Before we know it, we've, we're lost in a religion of our own making that's meaningless and powerless. Now, the call is to come die with Christ, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. Well, finally, in the third temptation, the devil strikes again at Jesus' identity and calling. And in verses 9 through 11, we read this. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan's tempting Jesus to test whether or not his father really loves him. He spent all this time in the wilderness thinking about who he is and why he's here. And he's had his father's words of affirmation uh, from his baptism ringing in his ears, you are my beloved son. But with each passing day, with each hunger pang, with each moment of loneliness, he must have been tempted to doubt these words. And now it would be tempting to wonder whether his father really does love him enough to help on the journey he's about to take, the journey that will eventually lead to the cross. Perhaps he should seek proof of the Father's love. I mean, we've all done it, right? We say, you know, God, if you really love me, you'll let me have X. Or God, if you really love me, you'll take this thing away from me. Or God, if you really exist, just give me a sign, right? But it's a trap. And Jesus sees right through it. Once again, he quotes from Deuteronomy saying in verse 12, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he's recording this incident that happens about 1,500 years prior with the Israelites when they're in the wilderness and they're wandering around. And he's under, he understands that he's being tempted to do what they did at a place called Massa, where they murmured against Moses. They forced him to ask God to provide them with a miraculous supply of water from the rock. They were, in effect, tempting the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Exodus 17, and Jesus remembers what the Lord said to the Israelites. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. But Jesus knows his father loves him. He knows he'll be there for him. And he knows that if he obeys his father, he's going to be okay. 
Now, what I love about this story and these three temptations is the way that it just relates directly to our own experience of followers of Jesus, how you and me struggle to live the life we're called to as disciples. We're tempted by doubts that God really loves us and that he really has a calling for our lives and even that he's the only one that we should be worshiping. After all, there are some pretty gratifying things out there that offer immediate satisfaction much more quickly. You know, we can get the approval of people if we want to, right? We can get good grades at school and we feel good about ourselves. Or we can seek the love of another person who will say, you know, they they will love us so much, we'll feel so special. We can seek financial security perhaps and build up our stocks and our shares, our, our retirement, our pension plan. We can seek it in physical pleasures such as food and drink and sex. We can seek it in having a, a bigger home perhaps. Or maybe we can increase our religiosity and our church attendance and the good things we do. Or perhaps we can seek it in the next great gadget, movie, item of clothing, etc., etc. These things are much more immediate, aren't they? Much more easy to seek satisfaction in those. And yet none of those truly gives lasting satisfaction. The satisfaction just comes and it goes. And each time that we're seduced, we lose just a little bit of our true identity. And our true calling is gradually forgotten. One of my favorite theologians, an Englishman called N.T. Wright, puts it like this. The temptations we all face day by day and at critical moments of decision and vocation in our lives may be very different from those of Jesus, but they have exactly the same point. They are not simply trying to entice us into committing this or that sin. They are trying to distract us to turn us aside from the path of servanthood to which our baptism has commissioned us. Wright continues, God has a costly but wonderfully glorious vocation for each one of us. The enemy will do everything possible to distract us and thwart God's purpose. If we have heard God's voice welcoming us as his children, we will also hear the whispered suggestions of the enemy. So what are we to do? How are we to stop ourselves from being distracted? Well, the good news is that as God's children, we are entitled to use the same defense as the Son of God himself. So first then, we must store up Scripture in our hearts and know how to use it. This is Jesus' weapon of defense, right? And please note which part of Scripture he quotes from. Where is he quoting from? Which, Which part of Scripture? The Old Testament. Often we think, well, that's just an old book. It doesn't mean anything anymore. We don't, we don't look at that, okay? No, the Old Testament is God's word too. And it's something we must not avoid, but read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. God speaks through the Old Testament. Now, I wonder how many verses or passages of Scripture you know that you could recite by heart. Are they written on your heart? So whenever temptation comes, you can instinctively know what to do, or you can remind yourself of what God's word says. Know God's word. Second, we must keep our eyes on God. We must trust in him in everything. Know that we're his children, that we're dearly loved, and he always has our best interests at heart. Repeat after me. I am dearly loved by God. One more time. I am dearly loved by God. That is the beginning of your identity, friends. That's the beginning place right there. Know that. 
And that even in the worst of suffering or the loneliest of times, he has our best interest at heart. And this might be incredibly hard to believe, but he does. He really does. Third of all, we have to remember our calling to love God and to bring God's light into the world. You have a vocation. Whatever your earthly job may may be, you have a heavenly job to do. And you can do it wherever you are, wherever you are. You don't need to wear one of these funny things around your neck, right? You guys are ministers of the gospel, as am I. And finally, we must say no to the voices that try to lure us back into darkness. And this might involve telling a trusted Christian friend, perhaps, maybe a mentor or a pastor or a life group that you're in, of a temptation that you really struggle with. I have a couple of people who will do that for me, and I do it for a couple of people in my life as well. And this helps to break its power by bringing light to the dark areas in our lives. Or maybe simply by asking God to enable you by the power of his spirit to help you overcome these voices. Do whatever it takes, friends. The good news is that we know the second Adam has overcome the temptations that we struggle with, and he has defeated sin once and for all by choosing the path of the cross. Repent and trust in him, and you will be set free and empowered to live for him always. Let us pray. Oh, come Holy Spirit, come fill us again. Come empower us to live for you, Lord God. We love you, but we know that even as we walk out of this place today, we will be uh, facing temptations each and every step of the way this week. Lord, would you help us not to succumb, not to be distracted from our mission and calling as the devil seeks to do that? Would you help us to trust in your power and to be people who are prepared to face him, knowing scripture, knowing who we are, with friends along the journey as well. Jesus, come help us. We pray this in your name. Amen.